Welcome to the Seasoned Athlete Podcast, your home for stories, inspiration, and advice from athletes over 40. I'm your host, Robin Leggett. I'm a later in life athlete who became a roller derby skater in my 30s and a runner and obstacle racer in my 40s. Now I'm an athletic aging coach who helps women over 40 experience the massive life benefits that come with exploring your athletic potential at any age and any fitness background. If that fires you up, keep listening. Let's do this. Welcome, welcome. Happy to be back with you with another fabulous episode of the Seasoned Athlete Podcast. This week, we have a different kind of story. Now, we've had a number of episodes featuring people who have embarked on epic treks, running, biking, swimming, you name it. Of course, every single one is massively impressive. But what makes Dr. Daisy Purdy's story different isn't just that she made a human-powered cross-country trek on roller skates. Well, I mean, that is different. But what really makes it unique is that she embarked on her journey to fundraise for native lands and community health, which is a super important and not especially well-known cause in this time of COVID. I had a really fascinating, enlightening, and quite frankly, fun conversation with Daisy, where she shared who she is, why she does what she does, and some of the truly unique experiences she had skating 2,000 miles from the mesas of Arizona to the mountains of South Carolina. Here is my conversation with Daisy Purdy. Hi, Daisy. Welcome to the Seasoned Athlete Podcast. Thanks, Robin. Are you ready to drop some seasoned athlete knowledge on our listeners today? I will absolutely try to. That's all we can expect, and I know you will. So you are Dr. Daisy Purdy. You're an activist, a scholar, community organizer, entrepreneur, and you said with a question mark and athlete committed to justice. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm already going to take away that question mark. Daisy founded an equity and inclusion consultancy collaborative called Inclusive Community. You earned a PhD in political science and you were a lecturer of ethnic studies, applied indigenous studies and sociology at Northern Arizona University for 10 years. You currently have another dissertation under review by Ecological Sciences, and upon acceptance, you will be granted a second PhD. That makes you a double doctor, right? Mm-hmm. You recently accepted a position as Associate Provost at Moravian College, where you co-cultivate equity and inclusion initiatives strategically within the academy. But your holistic commitment to justice extends beyond institutional and conventional, and that's what we're going to get into here. Okay. Your fervor for physical activity in the great outdoors stems from connection to cultural teachings and maintaining agency. To fundraise for native lands and community health, you recently roller skated 2,000 miles from the Dineta, the Navajo Nation, beginning in Arizona, all the way to the Atlantic Ocean in South Carolina. This wasn't your first unconventional self-powered trek for a cause. 21 years prior, you and a team of five other athletes biked, hiked, and kayaked over 4,000 miles, zigzagging from Boston to San Francisco to fundraise for Parkinson's Disease Foundation. Although your commitment remains unchanged, your condition has, as you are now officially a seasoned athlete. (laughs) (laughs) We can give you that designation now that you're on the show. Does it come with a cape and a mask? Because I feel like at this point, we should have earned something. I seriously, but the thing is, they don't give us anything, whoever they are. Okay. Not only do they not give us anything, they usually try and take away and say, you know what, when you reach a certain age, you shouldn't even be doing this stuff. So we have to, you know, make our own cape and mask Mm -hmm. in this regard. So 
before we really dig in, I'd like to ask the question I ask all my guests, which is what is your age at this moment in time? At this moment in time, I am 41 years old. Yes. Awesome. So you're like a, you're a baby seasoned athlete. You're just getting started. Yeah. Just a little pre-seasoned athlete. <laughs> exactly. Just a little dash. Lightly marinated. Lightly marinated. Just a dash of seasoning. We haven't gone overboard yet. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's go back in time. What did your early athletic life look like? Did you play sports growing up? I didn't do much in the conventional team sports realm. I grew up in kind of a scrappy neighborhood. So my affinity was more towards martial arts. I used to go to the boys club and study karate with my friend Siobhan. And we would get in for a quarter and lift weights beforehand. And uh, it was aptly named the boys club. There weren't very many women there. So her and I kind of kind of did our thing. And at that point in time, I squat my body weight, and I don't know that I could do that now. So my teenage years to my 40s, there's been a significant transition in, in many different capacities, but <laughs> certainly a, an unusual path. And then my folks were always telling us to go outside. So my non-team sportsmanship included things like pond hockey, where I would stand in the net and people would take slap shots at my head. And um, you know, you were, it was like, you were the, the sacrificial lamb and yeah, that, pretty much and pretty like much. you go stand in the goal and we're going to just yeah. hit you. I head. bounced well. <laughs> you, yeah. You, you, you fall down and you get back up. You, that trait came early, right? Exactly. Especially in the Boston area. If you know anything about folks in Boston, pretty tough. And they love their hockey. And they love their hockey. <laughs> yes, exactly. So you played outside, you were scrappy, you had that mentality, but not a lot of organized sports in your life growing up. So at what point, uh, you know, I mentioned you did the 4,000 mile trek. That, was that the first like big athletic, like really big athletic endeavor that you participated in? Definitely of that caliber, yes. I feel like athletics has always been marked by a significant transition in my life. So I started doing team sports after my family's house was foreclosed on and we moved from Boston to Maine and it was a very sudden shift and I didn't have any friends. So team sports seemed like a way to meet people. And I started playing field hockey and I still to this day describe it as the strangest sport ever where you only use one side of your stick and the ball can't touch your feet. Um, but it was a way to meet people. And my field hockey coach had said, you know, you're really fast. You should, you should consider running. So I started running track and I went from a mediocre athlete in Massachusetts where there's a really large population to one of the fastest runners in the state of Maine where there's a really small population. So it's not necessarily that I got any faster. It's just that there were less people to compete. It was probably, again. did it feel good for the ego being sort of the big fish in the small pond out there? I actually don't have much of a competitive nature. Again, it was a social outlet for me. Um, my dad was definitely pushing me because there was the question of how are we going to pay for college and uh, saw sports as a potential for athletic scholarship. And I was recruited to a couple of different division three schools, but I just didn't have my heart in it. You know, I loved the people. I loved the the physical outlet of it, you know, the health outlet of it, but the, the competition element when you're expected to win. Yeah. It, just that level of pressure, it was really uncomfortable for me. So I ended up working full-time through school instead of instead of running track and uh, and then almost dropped out of school, which brings me to my next transition. I was getting ready to drop out of college and an opportunity came up to be a triathlete for the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, specifically biking, hiking, and kayaking across the nation. Kind of a friend of a friend type thing said, you should consider doing this. And I said, well, 
I'm not a biker or a hiker or a kayaker, much like I wasn't a field hockey player or a runner. And, <laughs> uh, and I said, but yeah, I'll, I'll hop on a call. I'll talk to them. And I met the other five athletes on the team and they were, they were all older than me. I was a baby. I think I turned 22 days after we left on the trip and they were all, you know, a, a wealth of knowledge in their different areas, you know, bike mechanics, leading multi-day trips, you know, summiting 14,000 foot mountains. And then here I am, I show up for the backpacking portion of the trip with like a book bag and water balls <laughs> bottles strapped to the outside of it. And, and they were like, oh, dear. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I kind of found, I find my feet as I go. That's kind of been my rhythm when it comes to athletics. And I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm naturally athletic and um, maybe not so fortunate that I'm incredibly stubborn. And those two things have definitely paved the path for me in, in terms of, of my athletic yeah. career, if you will. Although it generally costs more than it pays. Well, isn't that the case a lot of the time? You know, I played roller derby, so I understand that it costs more than it pays. Like it costs and it doesn't pay is what it is. But what I'm taking from this, you said, you know, you, you're naturally athletic, but you're also incredibly stubborn, which you know, you say may or may not have served you well, but it sounds like connecting it to a cause and connecting it to fundraising actually has served you well because it gives you the fortitude, the determination to complete these tasks because you actually believe in why you're doing it. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So um, I've made a commitment throughout my lifetime to try and leverage my privilege to the benefit of others. And my body is one of the ways that I can that I can model that, right? That I can do that. And thinking about the things that I love and the things that I'm passionate about and the sacrifices that I'm privileged enough to choose and to make, which is what athletics is for the most part, right? I'm choosing to recreate in different capacities. So if I'm going to do that, what's a way that I can engage that process and be respectful of the fact that we're all on native lands, right? These are ancestral homelands. And looking at systemic injustices and, and systemic racism and how that's affected different people um, and folks who aren't as able-bodied as I am and as able to engage in, in some of the sports that I've been doing um, and have made amazing accomplishments in, in different ways of their own, right? And so with the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, with that opportunity to bike, hike, and kayak across the nation, I had never been off the East Coast. I didn't come from a family that traveled. Um, I didn't come from, you know, my parents just got passports for the first time in their lives when Canada started requiring it because that was the, that was the big trip to Canada, right? So I was curious about the world outside of my immediate surroundings. Um, and as I said, I wasn't, wasn't sure what I wanted to do next uh, in my life. I was uh, struggling in school and, um, you know, working full time, schooling full time and just wanting something different and something more. And so when this opportunity came up, the alternative was I was going to drive a train, drop out of school and become a train engineer. That was the, that was plan B, contingency plan. <laughs> I love that even your contingency plan was a bit unconventional. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, with a name like Daisy Purdy, how can you be conventional, right? Yeah. And that's a great name for a train engineer too. Exactly. Daisy. <laughs> So yeah, there were three male and three female athletes and um, I learned so much from them in that time, just because they had been exposed to such a bigger world than I had been exposed to. And I really learned a lot about connection to place, not only connecting my body to 
soil, water, air, everything that's around me. Um, but the, the stories and the legacies and the narratives of the land. Uh, and I just really learned to love people's stories. And I, you know, I come from a cultural background where, where stories are passed down from generation to generation to generation. But unfortunately, in the United States, too often stories are packaged into this one dominant sort of messaging of what it is to be American. So to be able to have time to slowly, you know, zigzag across a nation propelled by human power and listen to that potpourri or quilt of, of stories and how they're woven together to form this collective identity on these, these native soils, on this, um, you know, indigenous continent. It was such a gift um, and it changed me fundamentally forever. One, I couldn't imagine not spreading my wings and flying beyond that. Two, my body was able to do things that I never imagined possible. You know, I never thought about sitting on a bike seat for 10, 11, 12 hours at a time and, you know, enjoying, enjoying it. Not to say that I enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, That's certainly not the case, but finding um, finding joy and pushing myself to the max, finding joy in the physical pain and, you know, healing a lot of emotional hurt through a lifetime of, of exposure to not, not the most pleasant things, right? And then finding a new home on the West Coast and um, connecting to a whole different demographic of society than I had ever been exposed to in the greater Boston area and not having a car for that year that I was there. And my bicycle became my my war pony, my means of getting from point A to point B, uh, which is a totally different lifestyle for me as well. So um, definitely got me through my undergrad. Yeah. So massive life transition happening in that journey. And and something like that, I, I imagine that would happen for most people in different ways, of course, but to spend that much time seeing the country in a way that you can't see by car, that you can't see when you visit a city from time to time. I've interviewed a few people on the show that have done cross-country treks on bike, running, things like that. And these are the stories I hear that they have spoken to connecting to the people that they meet, the individual stories. And that stuff fundamentally changes them as well, these stories and and the culture of the areas that they visit. So it's something that's most people won't do. And I feel like everybody should do, you know? Well, and I think too, not only does opportunity present itself, but a lot of times I would find myself questioning access and things like being able to skip a 15 year waiting list to kayak through the Grand Canyon on the Colorado River, right? That's an amazing opportunity. And then I'm meeting people who are talking about, you know, they've lived there for thousands of years and they've never had that level of access to see this river that's the lifeblood of their community. And it got me to asking some of the bigger questions that have since determined, you know, my life path and the equity and inclusion work that I do. Um, and the cultural landscapes and the cultural maps that that aren't necessarily visible uh, when the political boundaries are there and we see place as something two-dimensional. So, Yeah. And you bring up a, a really interesting point about this opportunity you had with uh, the Parkinson's Disease Foundation. Yeah, that they gave you that opportunity to experience something that people who have lived there for generations can't. And so that that speaks to, yes, you are supporting a cause that's important, but why can't the people who live there access this land? You know, why can't they experience this? Does somebody have to donate or or pay significant amounts of money to be able to do something that should be accessible to everybody? Yeah. And then what is our role and responsibility in changing that when we do have opportunities to, you know, amplify those concerns and, and use our privilege to 
create some of those changes that need to exist. But um, I did wait until the very end of that trip to, to ask the executive director of the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, you know, why me? You could have chosen anybody across the nation, any, you know, athlete across the nation that actually was athletic in the sports that the trip entailed. And he said, well, I figured when times got tough, you know, when it got really cold or it got really hot or people were really tired or there were negative group dynamics, you would be the one who was like, come on team, we can do it. And they would figure that if you could do it, they definitely could do it. So (laughs) I was kind of the the underdog with the will of steel, I guess. Right. Bring that relentless positivity and (laughs) it comes in handy. It really does. Mm -hmm. So um, you mentioned to me your values are rooted in queer Afro-indigeneity and you have spoken to that a little bit today. Can you talk about what that means and how it fueled what ended up being your next major adventure, as far as I know, unless there was something in between, which was this 2000 mile skate. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of life transpired in between, but as far as sort of the the goal markers of big ultra marathon legacies, I would say the 2000 miler was the next big one. And so I was raised with cultural teachings that, that teach us Alohi, the earth is our mother and Gavlov, the sky is our father. And that water is the connector of all beings and water is significant because of, of gender fluidity, right? The one thing that connects all people everywhere is something that, that doesn't adhere to this gender binary. And so nature is queer for lack of a, of a, of a better metaphor to give to it. And there's actually a really good organization called queer nature called exactly that. If you want to check out some. Uh, Instagram posts or online social media presence. I really recommend following Panar with Queer Nature because um, they do a much better job than I do explaining how nature doesn't subscribe to you know white male patriarchy. Um, this is the beauty in and of itself as the creator and shaper of all beings. And then um, my maternal family is African American and Native American, and so there's a lot of beauty and history and cultures in those cultures and their ties to community and land, and a lot of pain with colonization, dispossession, displacement, and forced removal. Uh, My paternal family, my dad's family is white, and that's also granted me a lot of opportunity to access spaces that I wouldn't be able to access if I weren't as light-complected as I am, if I wasn't able to code switch, and if I wasn't able to pass. I mean, I'm literally a safer human because of the way I look. I'm less likely to be targeted. And when I think about how access has been limited more to my mom's family because they're darker than I am, right? Because their hair might be more textured than mine is. They might have different physical features than I do. And so they're placed in these boxes and these boundaries and borders are built up around them as to what they're expected to do and what they can and can't do. Um, And those boundaries and borders for a large part have been broken down for me. So when I say I identify with values of queer Afro-indigeneity, I think to being made up of the best parts of my ancestors. And I think about being given an opportunity, being the best and the strongest of those who came before me to really carve out a path for my posterity, those who come after me to ease, um, grease the wheels, if you will, their access points to be able to spread their wings and fly as much as I have been able to, to be able to wander and feel safe as much as I have you know, to really disrupt the systems that that limit and create margins and oppress. And so that is what brought me to the 2000 mile roller skate. I started an equity and inclusion cooperative, consulting cooperative, as you had said, 
And that's been a great opportunity. We've been able to do a lot of trainings. Um, we've been able to engage a lot of different speaking events. Um, all of our profits, for the most part, go to community capacity building projects. So we give back, re-resource from those that have to those that don't. And with that, when the pandemic hit, I was in the process of finishing my dissertation and sheltering in place, sitting down, planning on not moving for several weeks to write a dissertation. And all of a sudden that became more of a national and even a global reality for folks. And so when I was taking writing breaks, I wanted to go out and go for runs, but being in the East Coast, there were too many people on the sidewalks for me to feel comfortable. I didn't want to share space, didn't want to share air. And so I had my folks mail me my roller skates, which I hadn't put on. And I played roller derby as well. I played roller derby. We missed that part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Doom's Daisy. Okay. Um, with high altitude roller derby. Loved it. It was a lot of fun. Um, as they say, it's not if you get hurt, it's when you get hurt. So my knees decided to retaliate and I'm no longer playing roller derby. But when did you play? How long? Gosh, I want to say I played for about four years and I stopped playing eight years ago. So I was, I started, um, the league was relatively new league when I started skating in Flagstaff, Arizona and with high altitude roller derby. And those women were amazing. I mean, talk about having 50 sisters as yes, you know. as I know <laughs> and talk about being the best combination of martial arts and ice hockey. True. True. Step true. On some roller skates. I can see how you were drawn to roller derby. Yeah. Drone women yeah. getting around in circles, knocking each other over. You can hit people. You don't get arrested. I know. What's not to love? <laughs> yeah. And then afterwards, it's just tutus and hugs. Yep. Yep. I, yep. I, I know all of that. I know we're kind of sidetracking here, but you talked about how, you know, you got into field hockey because you wanted to meet people. You want to make friends. That's how I got into roller derby was I was in a new city and I didn't know anybody. And I found an ad for the LA Derby Dolls. And so I joined, I'm not because I was an athlete. I wasn't, I joined to make friends and I did, <laughs> like I did make friends and a lot of other things happened in my life. Like it, it definitely was a catalyst catalyst for a lot of change in my life. Um, and I hear that story over and over and over again, but, but it also helped me become an athlete. Like it led to me becoming an athlete and recognizing that within myself. So, so yeah, we are taking away that question mark, by the way. Yeah. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> hey, it's if you played roller derby, you're an athlete. Come on. <laughs> I guess I was still bouncing from the time I was a kid, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. Exactly. I was just going to say roller derby redefines sexy in a way that really pushes back against, you know, this Western white beauty aesthetic of what it means to be strong and what it means to be sexy and what it needs to be feminine and masculine. It just really is such a beautiful blending of the human experience and the complexity and nuances of of sexiness and toughness and camaraderie and sisterhood and all of these different things that just fill your heart and blow your mind. Right. Yep. Yeah. And change your life. Like <laughs> all of that, you know, I, I'm just, I, I could be here and be like, yep, 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 yep. But you know, that doesn't make for a good podcast, <laughs> but I did it, did it anyway. Yeah. Um, so you had roller skates We're we're going to go back to the main topic. You had roller skates and they were probably pretty good roller skates. And so you had them, you had them sent to you. Yeah. My parents shipped them and, and I would go out and I would roller skate on the sidewalks. At that point in time, I was in North Carolina, um, subletting a place in the Outer Banks to, to write and actually subletting a place from one of the women that I biked, hiked and kayaked across the country with. We have maintained the three of us, Andrea, Becky, and myself have continued to be friends and will continue to be friends for life. We celebrate all of our big birthdays together and 
beautiful humans. That's, that's, that's amazing. And it speaks to, again, the power of the athletic community, the sporting community, that it draws people together that lift each other up, that support each other, that are positive contributors to each other's lives. Like I see that in every sporting community I've been a part of and you've experienced that too, or, you you know, these friends, these people that you did this grand adventure with in your early twenties are still deeply connected to you today. Yeah. And they understand you in ways that no other human could because they've seen you under the most extreme conditions possible. Right. And they've been there to either help you out on the other side or they're the ones that put you there in the first place. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> but it was to make you stronger. Yeah. They make, you, laugh, they make you cry. Yeah. yeah you it's know? all character building. Yeah. It's, it's a testament to when smartphones and, and cell phones came out that those people whose phone numbers you still know from a time when you had to know phone numbers, right? right? Those, are, those are your friends through athletics. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. So you're North, you were in South Carolina. North Carolina at that point in time, roller skating along. And I had, I had maintained, I had lived in the Southwest for 12 years and I'm always committed wherever I live to trying to be of benefit to whatever community I'm living in. So I had built some connections with community around the Southwest, you know, intertribal, intergenerational connections. And one of the connections that I built while I was out there was with Dr. Tommy Rock. And one of the reasons that I was so interested in Tommy Rock's research is because he found this beautiful way to blend Western science and knowledges with his cultural understanding of place without having to assimilate or, you know, um, dismiss one or the other, right? And to really just strengthen the narrative of place supplemented by Western science. And his research really interested me. And when COVID-19 hit, he looks at um, the effect of uranium and other other toxins, heavy metals on land and public health, community health, specifically on, on the Navajo Nation, Dineta. And when COVID-19 hit, I kept reading all of this news about disproportionate impacts on the Navajo Nation, right? Infection rates being so incredibly high on the Navajo Nation and having a lot of friends who lived on and had relatives on the Navajo Nation. I I was engaging in communications with Tommy and looking at some of the locations where he had identified abandoned uranium mines and looking at incredibly high spikes of COVID infection rates. When you do an overlay of the maps, it's undeniable that people are getting sick in areas that they're exposed to these environmental toxins. COVID-19 is a very clear case of environmental racism on a national level, but at that point, we were just looking at the Navajo Nation. And so Tommy Rock, Dr. Rock was saying a lot of this is is due to unregulated wells. Folks are are drinking water that's making them sick, and then underlying health issues are making them more susceptible to COVID-19 and less likely to be able to heal from it. You know, they don't have They don't have the President Trump helicopter coming in with, you know, all the the supplemental medicines, a whole team of people for each individual, right? Infrastructure is very different in those places. And even the messaging that exists isn't geared towards a lot of folks that are living off the grid on in Indian country and on reservation lands that don't necessarily have running water or electricity. You know, messaging about washing your hands and separating your elders when you're in a one room house that doesn't have running water is not messaging that was intended for you. It's, it's messaging that erases and invisibilizes. So Dr. Rock being the amazingly intelligent, 
scientist that he is and the incredibly compassionate and knowledgeable community member that he is identifying some of these connections and ties. And the two of us just kind of thinking, well, well, what can we do? And I, I started helping with some of the mask drives that were underway, started helping with some of the mutual aid rapid relief efforts that were underway to get resources into different communities, get to get donors um, to put dollars towards some of those efforts. And, and then Tommy and I just started talking about long-term, like what does the long-term look like? You know, you need to meet immediate needs, but what are some long-term solutions? And he was talking about regulated water sources and water filtration so that communities have access to water that doesn't make them sick. And this is a huge undertaking. So again, I'm out there roller skating, clearing my mind, you know, thinking about the state of the world. And I thought, well, what if I just keep going? You know, what if I keep roller skating and I just roller skate out to Dr. Rock and on the way, you know, I inform people about where I'm going and what I'm doing. And then I thought, you know, better yet, I've been trying to, to fundraise, you know, crowdsource fundraise. What if I add this to the component of fundraising that I'm doing and try and get folks to not only sponsor me per mile, but to build a movement behind it where there are solidarity skaters. And Robin, you too can solidarity skate. If you go to our Instagram at Mesa's, M-E-S-A-S, the number two mountains, you can sign up to be a solidarity skater and get folks to sponsor you by the mile or flat donation. And it's just a really cool way to get folks that are already skating or already love skating to be able to give back while they're doing it, right? And especially because skating has been such a connection point for BIPOC communities, right? Black, Indigenous, and communities of color because roller rinks were a place that you could go from one city to the next and know that you can jam skate, right? You can you can connect music to wheels and it's just a place that's really been that, that people of color, especially the Black community, has been able to thrive and, and teach folks some pretty cool moves. There's there. a really deep history there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's lost on a lot of people. Um, yeah. There's been some recent documentaries about it, but there's a deep, deep history in the roller skating community, specifically for the Black community, as a place of connection, as a place of uplifting. And we're seeing a lot of that happening in the pandemic. Roller skating has become like this big trend all of a sudden because it is a thing that we can do. We can go yeah. outside and we can skate so much so that it's hard to get skates now. I know, skates, wheels. And as you said, you know, remembering and respecting the roots of that is hugely important. Like, yes, it's a trend now and Western dominant mainstream culture, but the roots of that go so much deeper um, as a, an issue of, you know, desegregated spaces, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Amazing. And it definitely would serve all of us to research that, look into that and understand that. Absolutely. As so many of us get into skating or in my case, get back into skating after I imagine that was similar to you, get back into skating after a long absence. Yeah. My pair of roller skates were those metal ones with the leather straps that you put on top of your shoes. They were from my mom. My mom has a, uh, huge scar on her forearm. She wore those through a, a plate glass window. So she, uh, she has some history with skates too, roller skate dancing. and That makes roller derby sound like nothing if you're going through a glass window. <laughs> I know. I guess it's her own version. Yeah. So now she created her own roller derby. Not advised, not recommended at all. So uh, when did you start on your journey? That is a really good question. I want to say July 5th. 
June 15th, I'm sorry. And initially, as I said, the plan was, oh, I'll put on my roller skates. I'll keep going west to Dr. Rock. And then I uh, pulled out a map, looked at the mileage, sounded like a good plan. Then I looked at the topography and said, there is no way I am going to relearn to roller skate effectively um, through the Appalachian Mountains, like (laughs) elevation gain and loss. And as you know, roller skating is very different than rollerblading. You don't have the stoppers on the back, right? The terrain is much more felt under your wheels. There's a different element of skill and balance and challenge associated with quads. And so I made the wise decision and got in my vehicle and drove to Arizona and then got out and started roller skating east and uh, across some, some flat terrain initially and then hit the Continental Divide in New Mexico. And, and by then the, the dust had worn off the wheels and things were moving more smoothly. But I had planned on averaging 30 miles a day when I started June 15th and found that that I was able to fairly easily do 50 miles a day. My biggest limiting factor was my feet being beat up pretty badly. Although I did have the roller skates of my, my roller derby days, uh, they were pretty worn out. And I was incredibly fortunate that Antic Skates was willing to send me a new pair of boots and, and some plates and some wheels. But because of the shortage that existed, they had to mail them to me en route. So mm. I was starting on, on indoor wheels. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And for those who are listening who don't understand, indoor wheels are not great on outdoor surfaces. Yeah. You feel every little bump and pebble. Yeah. And you don't get much traction. You're sliding all over the place. It's not pretty. But on the upside, when the new wheels came, I was, uh, yeah. It was like gliding. Everything felt so much smoother, I'm sure. And the Albuquerque roller derby team, speaking of roller derby, they hooked me up. They got those plates put on the boots and the wheels set. Carson with Albuquerque roller derby. Um, When I got to Albuquerque, they had some skate for justice movements going on, shutting down streets and intersections with lives, um, with signs about Black Lives Mattering. Just really, really engaged a skate community there, roller derby and otherwise. So it was really cool to, to have that towards the beginning of my trip and also to be met on the Navajo Nation by Marley Shabala, who is a gonzo journalist, um, has been reporting on the Navajo Nation for 20 years, her home community for 20 years. And to just really get a hug from her and to have her blessing to do what I was doing and for her to provide me with some traditional medicines and some protections to keep me safe and route. It just really solidified that I had made the right choice. Um, kind of on a whim. It was about two weeks beforehand that I decided to go. My support driver fell through. I was able to find another support driver. Um, initially we were going to have a RV to sleep in and we ended up sleeping in my SUV. So of course, record heat waves this summer, skating through a pandemic-infested nation. It wasn't. It probably wasn't a very wise choice in a lot of ways, but it was certainly a very um, worthwhile choice. Did it? It felt like the right choice, right? Yes. Like ultimately, and that that's that supersedes anything else. Mm-hmm. It was also really cool to see the way that some of the pueblos in New Mexico, some of the sovereign nations there, were exercising their sovereignty because there were roads that were just shut down. It's like, no, you can't roller skate through here. You can get on the interstate I-40. It's like, oh, I can't, I don't really want to roller skate on the interstate, (laughs) but um, okay. I respect your sovereignty and I'll, you know, hop on a bicycle on I-40 and get through this section and then put my roller skates back on and keep going. Yeah. And considering the why of what you were doing, you know, you can absolutely support their sovereignty in the, in those areas. 
you know, because that's, that's what it's all about. <laughs> so I was going to ask, what was the hardest part of your 2000 mile skating trek? Was it the feet? The physical hardest part was absolutely the feet. My blisters had blisters. I like to say a blister would <laughs> pop and I would get it cut off and, and go to tape it up and say, how is there already another blister underneath? Yeah. Of the- I've been there. I've been there. Uh, now that I run, I've been there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the vibration, you just never get used to it. But a hurdle that I definitely did not anticipate that was more challenging even than foot care was police. I was pulled over. I think final count was 16 or 18 times, something like that. Wow. While roller skating across the country. And it wasn't, for the most part, it wasn't a friendly encounter where it's like, oh, what are you doing? How can we help with your safety and, and promote what you're doing? It's just a yeah, it was just a hard stop. You know, you can't do this. Well, why can't I do this? Because I did my due diligence. I read about a lot of places don't have skate policies outside of municipal districts. So when that was the case, I would just follow bicycle policies and and stick to that. And, you know, had called different DMVs. Sometimes nobody answered. I rarely ever got a call back, you know, trying to be responsible and respectful. Um, and at the same time, mostly just because I was visible. Had I not been doing it for a visible reason, I likely would have been less responsible and respectful. But since I was representing more than myself, trying to follow the laws as much as possible. And just the hostility, uh, oftentimes, even when I said why I was doing what I was doing. And you had mentioned earlier how I identify um, with Afro-Indigenous culture and roots. Also being acutely aware of different areas of the country that I was in and that, you know, I am female and that I am a woman of color and thinking about how do I describe this fundraiser for native lands and community health when I'm going through the back hills of Tennessee and all I'm seeing is Confederate flags and, you know, Trump flags, you know, how do I have that conversation with a police officer who asks me what I'm doing and already is pretty hostile towards my person, right? And so I had some very real conversations with Dr. Rock along the way. At one point in particular, I had taken a pretty bad fall and got up, you know, and and continued skating and was pretty bloodied and and battered. And I had um, either bruised or cracked my ribs, I'm not sure, a fall prior and was just having some difficulty breathing and just stopped. And I'm looking around at these Confederate flags, you know, and on these curvy roads where nobody can see me. And I just had a moment of clarity where it's like, yes, I'm, I'm doing this by choice and folks that are, that are impacted by COVID-19, especially those that have lost their lives and loved ones. Like that's not a choice they're making. And I shouldn't sacrifice my life and myself. Um, because then I'm not able to continue to put forth the effort to make some of those systemic changes that are so crucial for us to see, right? And so I had a, a very real conversation with Dr. Rock, and, and he's so laid back. He's like, Daisy, just get in the car, because initially I was going to end in Eastern Van Cherokee in North Carolina. But I'm also really stubborn. So since I just got in the car through that section, I said, now I'm going to roller skate the rest of the way to the Atlantic Ocean because I need to do my 2000 miles. And I had to skip this small section by car. (laughs) I got to finish what I started. Yes. And for those of you out there that are seasoned seasoned athletes, you understand it, right? You make a commitment, you follow through on it. and, And your body wants to go as much as it wants to stop, it wants to go. And I also 
was diagnosed with a with an autoimmune disease not too long ago, and I haven't pushed myself hard physically since that diagnosis because, and you know, age and being female, all of those different things with hormones mm-hmm. uh, running amok, going through early menopause and some of the effect that that's had on my body as a result of my autoimmune disease, and I didn't really know what my body could or couldn't do, and I was quite honestly scared to undertake this this 2000 mile trek because I had made a commitment. Um, I knew it was something that I wanted to finish and I didn't know on a day-to-day basis how my body was going to feel and what I was going to be able to do or what I was going to be able to eat that wouldn't make me sick when I don't have refrigeration and I don't have hotel rooms and I don't have electricity and I have a very limited ingredients diet because of my illness. And I can honestly say I probably felt stronger roller skating across the country in my early 40s than I did biking, hiking, and kayaking across the country in my very new 20s, right? So it's amazing what the body can do when the mind and the heart are connected to it. And I don't think I would have felt that same way if I hadn't been, you know, guided by my ancestors and supported by community. Yeah, it makes it bigger than you. Absolutely. That's hugely important. You know, going back to something you said, because it it stood out to me and I'm like, I want to remember to talk about this. You know, you talked about early on in our interview how you've benefited from privilege. Um, You've benefited from the privilege of passing, from being able to code switch, from, you know, having one white parent. and, And yet on this journey, I think you saw that that is all relative depending on where you are, you know, and you were, you were in an area of this country where that's not how they saw you. Yeah. And, and you you had some very real encounters with law enforcement and possibly other people out there that, that showed you the realities of what people of color across the spectrum experience in this country. Yeah. yeah. So that I, I found that to be really interesting and, and also really important to note mm-hmm. that, that all of this is relative and it impacts the BIPOC community across this country. Absolutely. And a lot of the folks that you hear about that are, you know, it's a lot of folks will bike across the country. Some folks have run across the country. Not so many folks have roller skated across the country, but a lot not of, too, there's not too many of that period. Yeah. A lot of times that is, is folks who have majority group identity and there's certain level of safety that comes with that, that, that I think a lot of people don't even necessarily recognize or realize. And then a lot of the solidarity efforts that you see out there where communities of color are running across the nation, there's group, there's a collective identity that's there and safety that exists um, in numbers, right? But it's not the same safety that would exist as an individual um, engaging in something like that if they're identifiably quote unquote other. Right. Which is woman and woman of color in your situation. So what was the most rewarding part? Mm. of this of this grand adventure the food um, (laughs) skating that much it's about the food and then you get the food from all over this country yeah a big celebrator of fourth of july as independence day because you know for for a lot of my relatives that's dependence day right that's the day that the the nation became official um and indigenous lands were were seen as as not politically valid and so, but 4th of July uh, barbecues, we were, and I say we, cause I had a support driver for part of the trip. Um, she didn't, she wasn't able to finish the trip because it was a, 
it was too difficult. You know, she was too tired. It was too hot, which was a challenge for me to hear as well. Right, because, you're like, you're in an air-conditioned car. What are you talking about? Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you think you're tired. Try being me. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, and, she, you know, she just comes from a very different background than than I do. For her, that was a level of challenge that was, that was too much for her that she was uncomfortable with. Um, you know, we talked about privilege before, and that was certainly certainly the case. And she was willing to give up a lot of time to commit to it, but not so much time that she could finish it. But the food component of 4th of July barbecues and cookouts when folks just just wanted to feed us, that was really nice. The scenery, absolutely, like the, the places in the country that we were passing through. I mentioned stories before of folks that we met along the way. Um, but beyond that, the stories of the folks that have connected to us online. I've had so many women of color specifically that have reached out and said, I wanted to do something, but I didn't know what I can do. And now I can be a solidarity skater. Um, One individual reached out and was saying that she wanted to skate the Navajo long walk because her ancestors had been forcefully removed from their home. And if they could walk it, then she could roller skate it. And she wanted to get donations to be able to do something like that. And she never thought that that would be possible until she saw what I was out there doing. And so it's just been really cool to create a platform for other skaters um, to skate in solidarity and to share their stories. And quite honestly, to celebrate, there's so much grief and pain and hurt right now. And it's really hard not to smile when you see somebody in a tutu and roller skates, right? That's That's just the reality of it. Um, So definitely highlights for sure. And undivided time with my dog before she passed, that was certainly a gift. Yeah, absolutely. What I loved about what you said is that what I think speaks to the listeners of this show is that, you know, not everybody is going to be able to do what you did or be willing to do what you did. <laughs> you know, not everybody has the the capacity or the time or the freedom to give up that time, put uh, take that toll on their bodies and mm-hmm. do 2000 miles. But you have created an opportunity for people to participate at whatever level they are able to do and to feel empowered Mm-hmm. for this greater cause at a time commitment and at a level that they are able to do. Because, you know, I get feedback on the show that it's like, well, that's great. You talk to somebody who, you know, skated across the country, but like, I could never do that. So I don't, I don't connect with it. But you have created an opportunity for people to be connected with your cause at their level. And I think that's important to note is that you don't have to skate 2000 miles across the country to connect with a cause. You can do it at, at any level you're at, but there is power to doing something that's bigger than you. Yeah. And I think you named one fabulous example when you were saying to folks, you know, research the history of skating in the nation, Black contributions to roller skating in in the United States and researching Native lands and whose land you're on, you know, knowing some of the history that exists there and, and knowing who's been displaced and dispossessed, knowing sovereign tribes in your area. Um, all of those different things are things that people can do regardless of their physical ability. We also have, and we have solidarity skaters that will send us, you know, a dollar and 75 cents because they roller skated 1.7 miles that day. And that's amazing to see. And we have folks that don't roller skate at all that say, can I go for a run and get sponsorship that way? Or can I just make a flat donation because athletics is not my thing or I don't have time or opportunity. And, and you know what, we're in a time, we're in a year where there's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of heavy stuff happening. We have a pandemic. Systemic racism has 
bubbled up to the forefront and become very present for a lot of people who have had the privilege of being able to ignore it for a long, long time. And then the issues of you know, indigenous people in this country and what you have spoken to about how COVID is affecting them very, very specifically. And so to do something that that is good, that is positive, to participate in something that feels good for you, that creates good for others, like we need more of that right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And even just participating on a very small level can feel really, really good. So, you know, it's important that you're, you're sharing that and we'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about links in just a minute or so. uh, So you can share all of the links to how people can get involved as a solidarity skater. Emotions that I've sprinkled throughout. You're you're very good. (laughs) Very good. I love it. So we'll, we'll share, we'll share links at the end. So people get out your pencils or your pens or get on your computer and your checkbooks, because we're going to get to that really soon. You'll be able to write them all down. And of course they'll be in the show notes as well. You mentioned briefly that like you felt better doing this 2000 mile skate than you did 21 years ago in your previous adventure. Uh, Were there moments where you felt your age specifically benefited you during this journey? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question because too often we see age as a deficit, right? We we feel that maybe it takes us a little bit longer to heal from injuries or our muscles are a little bit sorer from doing the same thing that we used to do or we might feel that we walk up a, a set of stairs even though we just got done running 10 miles, we walk up a staircase and we're, we're catching our breath. And it's like, oh, you know, this getting older is, is no good. But what I really felt when I was skating is age as a strength versus age as a deficit. I felt that I had really come into myself. And, and I say that in a lot of different ways, um, not only feeling physically strong while I was roller skating, but having the emotional fortitude to push through things like heat wave, you know, for example. And when I was younger, I think I probably, if I had done the same trek in my twenties, I would have been like, oh, you know, let me just take a nap in the air conditioned car and I'll get back out there versus, you know, doing it in my forties where it's like, oh, my muscles are nice and loose and limber. This is great. They're not going to lock up. It's nice and warm out here. Right. Right. And so some of those different things. And also, it was age was a lot of the impetus to choose to roller skate as well, because it's much kinder on my joints than running has been and much different type of exercise than biking would have been right You're You're apt to get more notice for fundraising. So I think age was a strength in just choosing, choosing my mode of transportation and my ability to stand up for myself against the police. I think I would have been much more intimidated when I was younger, when a police officer said, you can't do this and would have just said, okay, instead of saying, well, why do you know, tell me why and not being abrasive, but just knowing my rights and standing my ground. And so I guess those aren't very good athletic examples other than the warmed up muscles in the heat wave, but certainly as far as determination is is concerned as far as, you know, knowing that I can push myself and I'll rebound, which I didn't have that same knowledge when I was younger and knowing quite honestly, that if I get hurt, it's not the end of the world. There were also some adult realities in there where I chose the window of roller skating based on when my health insurance ran out. I knew I had health insurance through August 15th and I had to end by then, which is the only reason I didn't go from the Pacific ocean to the Atlantic ocean. I just didn't have time before I was no longer going to be insured, um, which is a scary adult reality too. Oh yeah. And if you were younger, you might've been like, oh, well, screw it. I'm just going to do it anyway. But 
you know, when you get older, you, you actually have to think about these things and you, and you make smarter decisions. Well, you learn how to fuel your body too. You know, I know how much sleep that my body can function on. I know when I'm bonking and I need to fuel my system. And it, when I was younger, I would just push through those things and, you know, just starve my body in a lot of ways of oxygen, of, of food, of sleep. And I'm still not very good about taking care of myself the way that I should for the level of athletics that I was engaging and continued to engage after I finished. I couldn't stop skating. It was in me and I had to keep going. This last couple of weeks, a little bit different of a story, but um, for the first few weeks after I finished, I continued to skate 10, 20 miles a day because that was the rhythm that my body was in. But just learning to breathe through my whole body, you know, learning to experience myself in ways that I was just incredibly comfortable with my human, if that makes sense at all. I think so. (laughs) Incredibly comfortable with your human. Yeah. Like the cadence of my feet with the way I was breathing, with the ground that my wheels were rolling on, with the trees that were around me. and finding your rhythm and your flow. Yeah. Confidence in navigating traffic, right? Um, Just some of those different things that come with age, right? And that come with experience. And also knowing that it might be one of, if not my last great adventure like that. And I say one of, because I seem to be a one in 20 type of person. So maybe at 60, I'm going to be doing something else along these lines. true. I was going to ask you if you would do something similar again, or if it's too soon to ask. Yeah, I think, um, I think horse trekking is going to be the the next big undertaking. Uh, I would love to see parts of the world on horseback. And again, it's a great way to connect with place, um, to connect with culture, to connect with people and to connect with another being an animal yeah the horse itself yeah mm-hmm. oh, that would be beautiful <laughs> that like i'm a dab i'm enamored by that like mm-hmm. i wish i could solidarity horseback ride with you yeah <laughs> i'm trying to think of ways that because you know missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and two-spirit folks is something that we also need to have very very much so at the forefront of our national consciousness because when you start to look at some of those statistics um it's horrendous and just thinking about you know, in, in my own family and my own friends, the numbers of us who have, have experienced assault, right, who've experienced violence and who have not had the same treatment that, that would have existed there had we, you know, not been Indigenous women, yeah. right? And so thinking about different ways that I can better support some of the initiatives that are already underway with missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and and two spirit folks. If I do another big athletic feat, I'm guessing that that, that that'll be the focus. Yeah. Yeah. Feet, no pun intended. Oh, look at that. But it would be a, it would be the horse feet because you you actually wouldn't be on your feet for this one, (laughs) which after all the roller skating, you're like, how can I do something where I'm actually, I'm not actually on my feet. Exactly. (laughs) So you mentioned that you can, people can still solidarity skate. People can still donate. How can they do that? That's a really great question. Um, I might actually bring Kara in for oh, that. She's, uh, a, bonus she's guest. a woman with the resources. I tend to misspeak a lot of the time and she's incredibly detailed oriented. So I'm going to, I'm going to invite her. Pass the mic. Guest. Hi. Hi, Kara. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to the Seasoned Athlete Podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. So a great way to support us is if you do have social media, uh, we have an Instagram which is Mesas Two Mountains, and that's the number two. 
And we there we have a Linktree account. So in our bio, we have a link to everything. You can find the Gather podcast. You can donate on our GoFundMe that way. Sign up for a Solidarity Skate. But for folks that don't have the website, we actually have, uh, or don't have a uh, social media, I should say. Uh, we have a website. And that one is fairly simple to navigate. So it's just www.rollerrock.org. And there you'll be able to scroll down and it'll say like, sign up for Solidarity Skate. And we have info for that. And it'll say, watch the trailer for the movie. Now that you're interested, buy a ticket. It's only five bucks. Perfect. You can kind of read a little bit about Tommy, about Daisy, about the Great Skate and see who is sponsoring us. I think that's also really important to to value and honor the people who sponsored Daisy because all of the funds that I don't, she didn't mention all the funds that we're raising. None of it went through the logistics of eating or going in a hotel or if her car broke down, <laughs> those are all self, uh, self um, funded. And also um, with a lot of our help from our sponsors. So we're very appreciative of them as well. Thank you so much. Thanks. All right. I, it's nice having a bonus person on hand to give all the, all the correct information. And she has been such a joy. You know, we work together normally and she's just been volunteering her time, you know, like I have specifically for this fundraiser and the hours that she's put into that social media sites and outreach and coordinating this, this gather film, um, Cara Hernandez, it's been phenomenal. Uh, yes. So I continue to learn and grow from her and forever am grateful of her. Any donation goes directly to Dr. Or, yeah, Dr. Rock's organization. Um, Dr. Rock's research team. So he doesn't he doesn't have an IRS status per se. So he works with an all indigenous research team. He has an indigenous cartographer that's creating the maps for pathways of exposure. Um, Marley Shabala that I mentioned earlier, the journalist. Um, she's she's covering sort of the written narrative of it. Uh, so there's not a political spin on it. It's just, this is the reality of it. Alejandro Higuera, that's a videographer, is capturing the story of it visually, working with a medicine person, Lillian. And she uh, essentially makes sure that Tommy is engaging community in, in culturally appropriate ways and looking at holistic health, not just, you know, cancer causing toxins, but what does that do on a spiritual level? You know, what does that do for for the species also that are impacted by it are more than human relatives. And, and so she's keeping them honest, keeping them real. So yeah, it's a full team, a full team that he has. And this is effectively a pilot study for him to gather a lot of the data to draw hard scientific lines in the relationship between COVID and environmental toxins so that he can then get enough funding, be it through National Science Foundation grants or what have you, to put in water filtration systems so that people have access to clean drinking water, Uh, which if we have any huge donors, maybe we'll be able to support the water filtration systems themselves. But right now we're supporting the the science of gathering the data, telling the story um, and getting the information out there to community. Yeah. And the more exposure you get, the better. Exactly. Unless it's uranium, then you don't want exposure. Exactly. You get all the zingers today. Selective <laughs> exposure. I yes. do it again. Yes. So this is truly grassroots fundraising and research. Absolutely. And it's kind of cool because we, before, you know, through inclusive community, through our consultancy, we've been able to do fundraising, but the fundraising that we do so often, the environmental and conservation organizations that want to support this type of work, their missions limit them to 
quote unquote, public lands. So they'll support this work if it's in a national monument. They'll support this work if it's in a national park. They don't want to support this work if it's on a reservation, if it's in community, because their mission won't allow them to. It's like, oh, we're protecting public lands. Well, do you think that the the air quality and the water quality and the soils know where that boundary is on the public lands? Right, or do you think exactly. It's the community Come that's on. next door. So yeah. it can be a hard thing to, to get funding for if you're not crowdsourcing. Um, so hopefully, hopefully it will develop into a nonprofit. We're trying to help Dr. Rock get his nonprofit status so that it is tax deductible and folks who want to make bigger gifts and are looking for those tax donations will be able to as well. But that's a fairly involved process. Yeah. yeah we do yeah. believe in transparency. So we have Funds Friday where we post everybody who's donated. So somebody's not like, wait a minute, what happened to that $250 I sent you by Venmo? Mm -hmm. And then also update folks um, how those funds are being used by Dr. Rock um, in his research and with his research team. So folks know exactly what's happening. So even though we don't have to be transparent, we choose to be. Which is important. And I think it it makes it a really valuable place to put your money because you know where it's going. Like, you know, that there's not a bunch of money being taken out for administrative purposes. You can see exactly where it's going and you can see that it's, it's going directly to the place where it needs to go. And that every dollar really counts. Yes, absolutely. So before we wrap up, I know you have important work to do and I want you to get to it. Uh, Before we wrap up and I ask this question of everybody, if you could leave us with one parting piece of wisdom, what would that be? Be the best of your ancestors. They've sacrificed a lot for you to be here. Do what you can to be part of the solution. Address systemic racism, address systemic injustice, and know that regardless of your of your level of accessibility, ability, involvement, um, that you can be a part of the solution. And that if you're not actively being a part of the solution, you're part of the problem. So the resources exist. Reach out. Yes. That was one of the most powerful parting words of wisdom that anybody has ever said on this show. Now do I get so. my cape and mask? Yes, I will send it. It's in the mail. I got it. I'm sewing it now. Okay. <laughs> you have earned your season athlete cape and mask and your bottle of season athlete seasoning. And, you can and, just change my question mark into an exclamation mark. That's, right, that? yes. that's a good starting point. <laughs> my work is done. You know, you did the work you came to do. I did the work I came to do. Yeah. Daisy, Dr. Daisy, almost double Dr. Daisy. <laughs> I'd say you could call me double D, but if you saw my chest, you would know that was not accurate. So, yeah, but if you're a double doctor, we can call it yeah. that too. You've earned that we'll too. Run with it. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your story on the Season Athlete Podcast. This was a lot of fun, uh, but it was also really powerful. And I love everything about that. And I love that you did this journey on roller skates. Uh, you're, you know, you're the first person. I've talked to several people who've done massive, massive endurance events, um, big, you know, multi-month cross-country journeys. You're the first who did it on roller skates. And as a roller skater, I have mad, massive respect for that. So well, thank so, you, Robin. Thank you for doing what you're doing. And I hope this helps spread awareness and helps you raise more money uh, for the causes because it's, it's so, so important. So thank you again for being on the show. Thanks, Robin. I appreciate the opportunity. It's been a joy. Listen, working from home can be hard and working out from home can be even harder. Figuring out when you can fit a workout in, what workout you should do, how often to work out, it can all be so stressful. And that's if you even have the motivation to exercise in the first place. 
That's why I put together the five must-do things to rock your at-home fitness and get the results you want, which you can download for free at robinleggett.com slash guide. This guide will walk you through some simple action steps you can take to amp up your motivation and easily fit home-based workouts into your daily life. In turn, you will boost your energy, feel better than you have in a long time, and get back to crushing your goals. You can download the five must-do things to rock your at-home fitness and get the results you want for free at robinleggett.com slash guide.